0: Lifetimes of Listening.
1: I was given a solid body electric guitar by my best friend in high
0: school. Throughout
2: middle school, everyone knew that I kept fighting for first and nobody was able to like push me back down.
3: I
0: started playing drums when I was eight. That all started with bouncing a basketball when I was seven.
2: For our drumline, we would have group costumes. One year, we dressed
0: up as crayons. And you know, I get emotional now, but that's the day I fell in love with the clarinet. Lifetimes of Listening.
1: Welcome to Lifetimes of Listening. This is a podcast that uh, seeks to understand why music is really important in people's lives. Well, today's uh, Lifetimes of Listening episode, by the way, is about finding your instrument. Now, as of June 2023, the Arizona Musical Memory Archive, from which this podcast is created, has over 150 musical memories posted in it now. And many of those stories explain how people discovered their musical instrument or were drawn toward a particular instrument. And today we're going to examine some of those really interesting stories and share them with a person uh, who has some real expertise. Now, Brian, uh, my co-host Brian Moon. Brian, I remember you described to me how you found the guitar and fell in love with choral singing uh, from stories you've shared in earlier episodes. But you also played trombone for a while, is that right? Now, how'd that all begin?
4: Well, I uh, my dad was a trumpet player, and I wanted to play trumpet, and I got to uh, seventh grade band, you know, day one, and they're handing out instruments, and I can't make more than a few notes on the trumpet because I can't buzz my lips that's in that small. However, um, I can buzz my lips, and on a, on a bigger mouthpiece, a, a baritone or a, tr- a trombone mouthpiece, I could do quite a bit. Um, and the director kept looking at my long arms, because uh, I, I have very long arms, there's and a, said, you there's know, a physical aspect." Yeah, there was to there was instrument. a physical aspect to me, um, and I was hesitant at first, and I fell in love with the instrument. It uh, it it was not, you know, it was again, it was my second choice that I got pushed towards, and then I just really kind of fell in love with. It. But so you, you've been a drummer, uh, a drummer for a long time. Off, How did off and that on t-
1: since fourth grade, know. have I been a drummer? I can't explain my choice of drums except to say that rhythm and pounding on things was always <laughs> was always very meaningful to me. Uh, I, I drove my parents kind of batty. I would I would pound on the kitchen table. I would uh, I recall traveling once in a car with my parents to visit grandma and grandpa in New Haven, Missouri, and the whole time we were in the car. I had a little thermos between my legs in the back seat, and I was playing drum rhythms probably along to something pop music on the radio. And they just knew if Dan's going to play a musical instrument, it's got to have something to do with hitting things. (laughs) Now, there's one other thing, and I don't know if this is really connected. A cute story. When I was a kid, and I mean six, eight years old, I had a lot of energy, as little boys often do, and I needed to get that energy out. And every so often, my mom, to give me a little way to to release some of this pent-up energy would give me an empty coffee can, and I'd go into the garage, and with a claw hammer, I would pound that can until it was flat. And <laughs> I can remember it to this day. I mean, we're talking 50-something years ago. But there was something about the act of hitting things that felt good to me. And it was a coffee can, or it could be the top of a thermos, and eventually, in fourth grade, a, a little uh, a little practice pad, which I learned to play snare drum uh, rudiments on, which I still have, by the way. Uh, so for me, it was always just that. It was just, I, I was drawn to percussion and rhythm and drums, and that's the direction that I went.
4: Well, we, we thought that one way to better understand these moments of instrumental choice is to speak to somebody who's often present at that moment of decision, and that's a music teacher. Our guest today is Karen Nolan. Professor Nolan is a member of the music education faculty here at the University of Arizona Dr. Nolan has researched instrumental choice, but perhaps more importantly, she's prepared literally hundreds of future music educators to assist children to find their own instrument. And we'll meet her after the break.
1: Well, Karen Nolan, welcome to this episode of Lifetimes of Listening.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's great to have you here. Now, I was mentioning to Brian recently how you and I became acquainted, and that was, what, 20-plus years ago? yes when we were both in the
2: in the i uh, think United. oh my goodness the university of arizona pep band um and so the, yeah you were you were our drummer and i was right behind you the basketball positioned, pep band. Yeah, yeah positioned with my uh my euphonium bell directly yeah. <laughs> directed towards yeah. the back of your head and uh,
1: not that our audience uh, will, will care but it happened to be a particularly memorable year for the u of a men's basketball team a very challenging uh, incredible year with Coach Olson and his wife's death, this, that, and the other. Anyway, that's a big part of University of Arizona. Music history is the pep band's role in the basketball games. Karen, tell us a little bit about the work that, that you do here at the University of Arizona School of Music.
2: All right, thank you. So I have been here, I'm just finishing up year 12, and prior to the university, I taught for 10 years in the Tucson Unified Public Schools um, and taught largely band, but a smattering of orchestra, choir, and a good amount of general music as well. And so when I came here to the university, um, I was pleasantly tasked with music education. And so I've been training future music music educators. I also run the Camerata Career Development uh, program here for the university. So I get to actually see pretty much every music major towards the end of their career, whether they're going into education or going into any aspect of the music industry and help them find their path, um, essentially their right fit for a career, help them get prepared. Um, So some of the music education classes I teach, I teach um, research methods. So we we delve into quantitative and qualitative uh, methods of research. I teach the secondary music education classes. I run the student teaching seminar. I run, I'm the director of the field experiences for the College of Fine Arts. And then I also periodically teach the elementary music education methods course as well.
1: Sounds like a
4: busy and gratifying career you have here.
2: It's very gratifying. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I'm lucky and I I absolutely love my job.
4: We're talking today about um, instrumental choice. And um, I was curious to know what your first instrument was and how you came to choose it.
2: All right. So my very first instrument was violin in fourth grade, not because I loved violin or wanted to play violin in any capacity. It was literally the only choice. As, a, as an elementary student, when you entered fourth grade, you could only choose orchestral instruments. Uh, I knew in my heart I wanted to play band, but I wanted to get a start on instruments. And so violin was that choice. And so I did play that a year. And then in fifth grade, moved on to clarinet. So that was my first band instrument. I remained a clarinet player from age 10 through now and that was one of my one of my major instruments.
1: So we all have different ways in which we get connected with an instrument and that's what this episode is about today. Um, uh, and you've done some interesting research in this specifically about string instruments, right? There from my recollection is there are half a dozen or so reasons why young students gravitate toward one instrument or another. Could you just summarize that for us?
2: Yeah, so that research stemmed from honestly, like curiosity on my end. Because when I chose my instrument, which was clarinet, um, I chose it purely because that was what my mom played. And my, my life revolved around, like, I love my mom. And I want her to be proud of me. And so when I was a 10-year-old, when it came down to which instrument of all these wonderful instruments did I want to play, I wanted to choose the one that my mom had played. Uh, and so that was the initial choice. As I went through my school, so that was fifth grade. As I got to seventh grade, I realized this was not a great fit for me. I stuck with it, but in seventh grade, I started to add every single band instrument so that by the end of middle school, I literally could play and did play every band instrument and just each song um, or each piece of music went to a different instrument in the group and was self-taught. I had an incredible music educator. And her name's Shirley Maddox. She just recently retired from music teaching, but she allowed me to just, she handed me a school instrument, handed me a method book, and said, go backstage, teach it to yourself, and come out and just play a song. Uh, and so I was, when I was doing research, I realized I chose incorrectly. I chose based purely on wanting to make my mother proud and wanting to be more like her in every capacity, but it wasn't a great fit for me. I never loved the feel of it in my body. I never loved the sound of it, even though I became very, very good at that instrument. And so as I explored all these different instruments through middle school, it was low brass was the instrument that was a much better fit. I enjoyed the tone. I enjoyed the sound. I wanted to play it, which was very different from all the other instruments that I played. So ultimately, when I came to the U of A, and it was time to declare what my major instrument was, I chose two. I chose clarinet and euphonium because I knew I wanted to be a music educator. So I said, let's do an upper woodwind and a low brass just to give myself the breadth of experience. But my love was always euphonium. That was the best fit for me because of sound. It was the one that felt right with with my ears and my body. Um, So when I did the research, I wanted to look into specifically what were the elements that contribute to other people's choices when they were first starting and does that have any sort of impact on how long they stay with that
1: instrument i was going to so say your first choice was to please your mom <laughs> yes and you didn't stick with it
2: <laughs> right <laughs> your
1: later choice was because of you really connected right and it, and, it, and you have stuck with it yeah.
2: right right and so i i no longer play clarinet at all um despite being very good at it it was finding that that right fit specifically with tone how did that instrument
4: sound i, I think it's also worth putting on the uh just out there that you may be a music teacher if you in seventh grade or eighth grade choose (laughs) to learn how to play all of the instruments. Like this is, this, this is a a suggestion that this may be a career path for you.
2: Yeah. I did know very young. Uh, and, and that was part of why I wanted to do the, the research I did as well was to figure out, is there some sort of tool that we could use as music educators to help a student pick an instrument that would contribute to longevity on that instrument. True happiness yeah, yeah. and a right fit.
4: What so have you been in the role of helping kids choose an instrument?
2: Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. And I take that role incredibly seriously. I, um, so as an, mostly in the elementary setting as a fourth and fifth grade band and orchestra teacher, that was my job was to do. So for instance, band, have them first pick tone quality because my research showed that if they like the sound of the instrument, that is the most contribute the most important contributing factor to longevity and um, and love of that instrument. So I would do all the demos because I could well, I was lucky and I could play all the instruments. I would do all the instrumental demos and have them choose based on sound first, um, which were their top three instruments, and then I would do checks on those instruments to get them actually. Playing on the mouthpieces, here's a quick lesson in how to produce sound on a flute, on a trumpet, and on a trombone, if those were their top three choices. So give them experience on the mouthpiece, holding the instrument, playing it before that decision happened to make sure that they still love the sound and it's an okay fit with their body and the size. So
1: what I'm hearing is that you, you want to ideally guide a student to connect with an instrument that works for them. Yes, You're not saying to them, you're playing clarinet because we need clarinets this year. <laughs> right. Which to me would seem like the worst. Re- I mean, if, if a child happens to connect with a clarinet because clarinets are needed and that really is meant to be their instrument, mm-hmm. that's magnificent. But to really look at a student and say, what's going to work for you? What do your fingers work well? What do your lips work well? Uh, you mentioned earlier your, your affinity the, for... Yeah,
4: I, I wanted to be a trumpet player and I... I um, uh, the truth is, my my lips don't buzz that way. But I became a trombone player because they do buzz really well in the low brass, and my my arms. The 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 um the I remember in seventh grade, the the band director said, "Hold out your arm," and he and he like held up a trombone to it and said, "Yeah, you, you really should consider trombone." <laughs> you know, like like I because I, he had baritones and he needed baritones as well. But he he uh, and I I fell in love with the trombone. Eventually, I really poured myself into it a lot. But, um, but it, was, it was very strange. To-
1: and as I said to Brian earlier, I, I became involved in drums and percussion because that's the only thing I ever really wanted to do. Yeah. I had a thing for rhythm. I could be hitting anything. I could be hitting a tabletop or slapping my knees or banging on a, yeah. on a trash can. But that act of, of percussing things and creating rhythms in that way. Is what worked for me. So this is, uh, really and honestly,
2: does. it's a t- it's a tough um, balancing act too. Because I like to say in an ideal world, every child gets that right fit instrument. But there are things like Brian you just mentioned. Sometimes physical size, um, mouth setup, teeth setup, lips, um, arm length will prohibit that student from starting it at maybe a very young age, sometimes ever. Uh, and so it takes a really I feel just a, a smart choice based on the the music teacher to recognize sometimes if the instrument won't work out and to gently guide them to an instrument that might be a better fit. But then the there was always I, I hate admitting this, there was always financial constraints. So you had mentioned, Dan, that sometimes like if you need a clarinet, you're gonna try to guide that student to clarinets. If a student couldn't provide an instrument and I knew we had 20 clarinets and 20 trumpets, but one sax, I'm going to have to be a little bit pickier about who gets that school saxophone if we can't truly afford to buy another instrument. So sometimes there did have to be, there was a little bit of flexibility needed on on the the teacher part and the student part to sometimes say like, I know you really want to play a saxophone now, we have a clarinet available to you, we're going to try to find a saxophone. Well, a lot of
1: factors, but, but, the, but the ideal goal of the music educator is to connect a student at at, the, at a young age with a with an instrument that really works, that works for them. Well, that's great work, and I, I appreciate what you're doing in the world in, yeah, in yeah. that regard. So, Karen, we've asked you here today not only to talk about your expertise and your love of music education and how you've worked with students to uh, help them choose the right instrument, but we want to share with you three stories from our musical memory archive that all have to do with with stories of people who found an instrument at a young age, and how much that meant to them. So the first one is a uh, gifted guitarist here in Tucson, Arizona, Jose Luis Puerta, who is a faculty member at the University of Arizona School of Music, and also leads, I believe, the uh, Tucson Guitar Ensemble, does or Orchestra, does he not? Wonderful musician, and he shared with me some time ago a, a wonderful touching story about how he became connected with the guitar. Here's Jose Luis Puerta.
5: One of my earliest musical memories was when I was in the sixth grade and it was mandatory to take music classes and I was not excited about that. (laughs) But that all changed pretty much on the first day of class when I saw what the students were doing with the guitars and just the recorder flutes. I remember walking into the room and the teacher, Mr. Berrios, he said, hey, you're the new guy just sit in the back. They, They start the The music class in the fourth grade and because I came into the sixth grade that group of students already been taking music for two years so I was two years behind and then like something clicked in my head and I just didn't stop since after that I went to a performance high school then the conservatory then the U of A and and now I'm here but that that was the moment that kind of started started everything. Yeah. So after that, I went to a school called uh, Escuela Libre de Musica, and it was a performing art school, but focused on, on music. And I wanted to play guitar, but it was, it's one of the most popular instruments. So it was full, right? So then I said, oh, can I play piano? It was full. Then I said, can I play saxophone? And they said like, well, it's full, but we give you the clarinet. It's the same thing. That, that was the approach. And then I got lucky enough that one of the students dropped in guitar and I was able to take to take that spot and that's when I started learning guitar and then from there everything kind of like aligned itself later because how portable the guitar is that was something that was also very attractive to me just to play with friends and then you start getting better so you start experimenting with more di- different genres and then you start getting your first gig and then you start thinking well I can actually maybe I can make a living with this.
1: So Jose's story about how he finally got connected with guitar. Karen any reactions to that story?
2: Yeah um So part of the research study that I did was looking at absolute beginners and what contributed to their choice and then professional musicians who had stuck with it for a lifetime to see If they could recall when they started their instrument, what were the reasons that they stuck to the instrument they ultimately ended up performing on? And so his story is aligning with those findings that um, some of the main contributing factors when you're just starting are availability to that instrument, accessibility to the instrument, the teacher has decided, room in the schedule, parental influence. So there's so many different factors that contribute to why a student ends up beginning on a certain instrument but if we're talking about longevity and he is obviously an amazing talented accomplished player um it's finding again that right fit so i'm really glad that he stuck with it. Uh, unfortunately, that story doesn't always have the happiest ending that Jose, Jose Luis's has, um, where a student will ultimately get frustrated if it's not the right fit and not have those opportunities, such as a student dropped out, so I finally got the chance to to find that right fit. Um, I mean, honestly, his is a beautiful story. I'm really glad he did stick with it. Um, It sounds like there are a couple of challenges starting two years after everybody else is uh, a little bit of a challenge when starting and then not having the first choice of of ensembles or instruments to choose. So honestly, it it definitely aligns with the research that if you're choosing the instrument that is the right fit and you love the tone, that you probably will end up with the highest likelihood of sticking with that instrument.
1: And what impresses me too is that once Jose Luis found the instrument, he found a half a dozen ways to to embed it in his in his life, right? His friends, opportunities for that. Once he was connected with the right musical expressive uh, instrument for himself, he found a way to make it integrated into his life in so many wonderful ways. And he's obviously, as you said, made a made a wonderful career out of that. And. Uh, yeah. It's a great story. I
4: I think also as people are listening to this at some point it's worth um, looking for Jose Luis uh, Puertas music on Spotify and other places because he's recorded a lot um and had an award-winning duo duet album in 2022 um that's really good. I I was uh, I listened to it quite great a bit story. so So, story number two. Brian, you want to introduce uh, our second uh, musical memory? This is um, an interesting interview um, on a lot of levels. So, not only is it interesting for this conversation we're having, but um, it is one of the few, maybe it's the only interview in the entire archive that neither Dan or I conducted, but was conducted by Isabella Brown, who was um, doing a directed study about making music podcasts with me and and uh, and I asked her to do an interview. And so this is one of her friends and and uh, and it was a really good interview. She did a great job. And, uh, and so I'm very excited to share the story that she gathered from her friend, Samantha Rea.
3: I'm Samantha Rea. I'm a journalist and mass communications major at Arizona State University. When I joined band in fourth grade, as nerdy as it sounds, I did pick the trombone, which was a very uncommon instrument to see a fourth grade girl playing, but it looked fun. The way that they let us pick our instruments is they had them all out in a row. It was like some sort of presentation. They would take each instrument out individually and they would play it. So they could show you, you know, how you play it and what it sounds like. And you just got to walk up at the end. And if you wanted to, you could <clears throat> you could sign up. So I ended up going up and I was like, hey, that trombone looks really fun. And it sounds really cool for just moving, you know, this slide back and forth. I want to figure out how that works. When I first started playing, it kind of opened up like a whole new world of understanding. And I just... Fell in love with it. It was so interesting. It was so like interactive that the more I played, the more I wanted to play. I was the only girl who picked trombone. Like nobody else is picking trombone. this eleven-year-old girls aren't looking at it and going that that is what's going to turn me into a princess. Like (laughs) it made me feel like I was ready for for more than people had anticipated. Because nobody looked at me and was like, yeah she's good at playing trombone. Like, unless you already knew that I played trombone, you weren't going to look at me and guess that this was something I would be good at. So it was like my little secret hidden talent that I was like, yeah, I play trombone. Like, it just, it made me feel like there was more to myself. It gave me, I feel like more meaning, more like pizzazz, at least in the way that I viewed myself, even if nobody else did. That's how I saw myself, was that I had these interesting attributes and I was really good at this, at you know, playing trombone as silly as it is. Like it's just a trombone, but to me, it was a possible future, it was my favorite hobby, it was something that I was really good at and that made me feel really good. So it's just you have to think like when you're looking at it from outside, when you're like, okay, like yeah, they're passionate about music, that's cool. That's not what it is to them. It's not, oh yeah, music's really cool and I like it. Like this is people's lives, this is people's happiness, this is what people take pride in.
2: So that so first of all you you are correct Samantha had some really incredible things to say that was a great interview. What's interesting or what struck me the most from her interview was the idea of instrument choice as identity development and being kind of a key aspect of the ability for Samantha to to develop a sense of self that almost went beyond what I would consider would be stereotypical gender roles with instruments which um there's actually quite a lot of research done specifically with band instruments, not with orchestral instruments, about the role that gender plays as parents or music teachers tr- or peers try to influence what instruments. Students choose. So as they were saying that trombone was something that typically a young girl would not choose and that that helped them identify in some sort of stronger way, um, that was really interesting. So it brought up, again, almost uh, for me, there was a lot of complicated feelings listening to that because as a music teacher, what I really tried to do was never reinforce any sort of idea that an instrument belongs with any type of gender, but rather be attracted to the sound. And it sounds like Samantha initially was attracted to... Um, they mentioned the fun of it, the sound of it, and the look. It was presented, it looked fun, and I liked the sound of it, and I wanted to figure out how it worked. So that part seemed like the initial draw to the instrument, which is that right fit. And then there was almost this added benefit of it seemed to defy what the stereotypical gender role at that time was with the instrument, which helped them to identify as a stronger individual. So that was, it was a really beautiful ending, but also a little bit complicated to hear that there were such strong gender roles associated with an instrument. I,
4: yeah, I I wonder I, I wonder about that because I uh, I mean I remember in junior high and high school band in the 80s um, it was instruments were very gendered and 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 there was very little reflection about that gendering of instruments that you know and uh, and I also remember um, not ever be playing better. In in the statewide competitions, than a female trombonist, uh, you know, and uh, and getting to college and playing an orchestra um, as the third trombone, where the second trombonist was a was a great female trombonist, you know, and so I, I remember a lot of great female trombonists, but I remember being in a section of all all male uh, trombonists for a long time, and it was very very much a genuine yeah, I'm, thing.
1: I'm dating myself here, but but kind of a, an adjacent thought. Um, I grew up listening to pop music in the 60s and 70s Karen Carpenter wow she's a great singer and she plays the drum set as wow. though that were some oddity which in those days frankly it was there have been some wonderful uh female drum set players and wonderful female one of the great female percussion soloists of the entire world is Evelyn Glennie who's one of the most gifted uh, percussionists in the world so this idea of stereotyping certain instruments going with certain people I think has evolved over the years to where hopefully that's not a confining concept anymore that that the right instrument for the right person is right for them regardless of their their physical makeup so to speak or their uh, yeah, that would
2: be the hope. It sounds though, based on that interview, that it is still a pretty prevalent thought um, that that was one of the, the main points that they were making was this idea that it didn't seem to fit. Um, so I think we still, you're right, we, we're going in the right direction. I still think there's a lot of work to be done. I'm, I'm I do identify as female. I've been a band director. I'm currently a conductor. I feel like I still am largely surrounded by male-identifying conductors and band directors. So, um, yeah, I think there's still those those gender um, roles that exist, and I think we're headed in the right direction. But it would also be maybe a little bit ignorant of me to assume that they don't still contribute to to and, thoughts. Yeah,
4: and to your to your bigger point of um, of longevity. And if you want to bring music into life in a meaningful way and connecting to the right instrument and how that, you know, how that's important, um, having any barriers is problematic. Um, I do, one thing I liked about Samantha's, uh, and, and, um, you know, she, she did reference gender enough that it's clear that it was, it was a part of, of her decision and her thinking. But one thing I liked about it is that she was, um flipping it's like oh you think it's a male instrument well let me show you'm I'm, I'm the I'm first chair you know <laughs> and 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 there was a, there was a sense of so it was pride uh it is interesting also um uh, that and in, in the longer interview um, there was a, a nine minute interview um, on the archive um it, it, she does mention that she doesn't play she's not doing music uh, anymore now whether or not she comes back to join a community band later and uh uh, you know who knows but but that's
1: okay one more uh, musical memory we want to share with you this is an interview uh, I conducted a few weeks ago with Norm Weinberg who's the former director of percussion studies here at the University of Arizona School of Music and uh, I, I actually spoke with with Norm for 20 or 30 minutes, and this story didn't come up until pretty deeply into our conversation. So it was very rewarding to hear this, uh, uh, Norm's, uh, what? how he found his direction to get involved in drums and percussion. Norman Weinberg.
0: I'm Norman Weinberg. Currently I'm a retired emeritus professor from the University of Arizona, and now I kind of have a good time being retired. <laughs> So I started playing drums when I was eight. And we were in music class in grade school. This was back when grade schools offered music classes. And one of the things that we were supposed to do was to bounce a basketball in rhythm to a song that was being played on a record player. And so that requires that you kind of plan in advance of when you're going to push the basketball down and it's got to travel through the air and bounce and then how hard you bounce it or if you catch it. so that you can... And I guess I did that pretty good. And the teacher said, Norman, you should be a drummer. I'm honest to God. So I made her write a note to my mom. Uh, I guess I banged around on things. And I wanted to be a drummer. So she wrote a note to my mom. And for my eighth birthday, I got lessons at a local music store called The Tune Shop. Okay, so fast forward now about two years, I'm 10, and the family that lived behind us and a few houses, Catty Corner, uh, the husband of this family was the principal bassoon in the Kansas City Philharmonic. Mrs. Spielman. Uh, called my mom up one day and said, now that Norman is playing drums, we've got an extra ticket to the Kansas City Youth Symphony. And so they took me to go hear this concert. The only piece that I remember being played was a violin concerto, but the rest of the program and that piece must have really, really knocked me on my butt because I came home from that concert and told my mom I wanted to do that. I said I want to do this. I want to be in that group. And the next Saturday, I was in that group. I started playing in the Kansas City Youth Symphony Training Orchestra. And the second year I played in both groups. And and I did that from I guess the time I was 10 till I went to college. And you know, for a kid it it was just fun. And I think this that orchestral experience Uh, was invaluable that all started with bouncing a basketball in uh when i was seven
2: what a great interview there um I'm smiling because literally right now, my eight-year-old is seeing the Tucson Symphony's Young People's (laughs) Concert. And I'm trying to think, like, is this a moment in his life that is also transformative or will forever change the trajectory? Um, Because he is also very musically inclined. So I'm listening to Norm talk, but then I'm also secretly wondering, is the same sort of transformation happening with my son right now? Um, So again, an absolutely beautiful story. What struck me the most was... Opportunities given to him by influential teachers. So he mentioned Miss Spielman. He mentioned the teacher with the basketball, writing a letter to his, his parents. And it seemed like it was just adults in his life that were influential, recognizing that there is something special and then saying something to that child that could forever change the direction of, of their lives because I mean Norm ended up being an obviously an incredibly successful percussionist and then um, faculty member here on percussion and so it seems like those early moments were absolutely pivotal pivotal of an adult recognizing there's some sort of talent in here it may or may not equate to anything but let me at least say something and advocate it for it and give him the experiences that um, that seem to forever yeah, change him.
1: Yeah it's a wonderful I, I thought to myself on the way here today I thought well, what would happen if Norm's music class had not included bouncing the basketball? And if nobody had seen that particular affinity? It's also on a purely technical level, he makes a good point. Bouncing a basketball has a lot has a lot to do with bouncing a drumstick. And there's a lot of talk among drummers, percussionists, about the concept of rebound. That being able to hit a drum in a manner that the stick rebounds is essential part of how you play the instrument. It's part of the embouchure, so to speak of playing a percussion instrument. So the, I just love the story in that in that respect. And Norm, and, uh, Norm had, had, in addition to um, that teacher who wrote the note, he also had other adults in his life, as you hear, his mom, the neighbor, so forth and so on, who just really saw something in him and saw, yeah, this kid wants to be a drummer. Let's give him the opportunities to do that. And uh, it really it really made a huge difference in his life which in turn made a, a big difference in many other people's lives yeah
4: i i uh i as i was listening to the story uh i i'm fascinated uh to hear your take and your uh i really like what 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 you came you know that it is so important for adults to nurture nurture these these um talents and and, and spot them and identify them <clears throat> because there is a i think there's a trend in the archive of stories that reflect the adult in a child's life that, that has said something to a child and, and has made a huge difference in relation to their connection to music. I, I think that uh, that we could probably find a half dozen, you know, things like that. But, um, but the thing that leapt out to me you know, when he was saying, uh, and then the teacher write a note, is it was sort of, um, I, I was thinking in terms of when my son, my older son, was picking an instrument, and I was like, please not drums, please not drums. You know, like, uh, because it's just like, it's a an invasive instrument to have in your house.
1: I, I, I don't know how my parents lived through it, frankly. My grade school and, and junior high school years in particular, when I got the drum set downstairs, and my parents put up with me practicing an hour or two, like every day of the week, to every every different kind of music. And they just appreciated that, that Danny loved doing this, and they were going to give him the opportunity to, uh, to follow through on it. Um, yeah, the, the only—I'll just mention one other influence on me that, that sent me in a direction of drumming, drum set in particular. I may have told you the story, Brian. When I was a little kid, and I, and I think if I try to recreate the chronology of it, I maybe was 9 or 10 years old, was playing in the grade school band at the time. Maybe I was as much as 6th or 7th grade. And um, my parents said to me, oh, Danny, you know, you really like drums. We're going to drop you off at the high school this afternoon. And there's a guy who's going to play drums there who you might like seeing. Around 1960, early 1960s, I go into the high school. They drop me off. I sit in the balcony of the auditorium by myself. The high school jazz band is playing with a guest drummer by the name of Gene Krupa. How many people my age... (laughs) even know who Gene Krupa was, I mean, most people my age do, but had the opportunity to see him because he was well beyond his prime, past all sorts of terrible, crazy things in his life. But there was another influence that just said to me, somebody cares that I like drums and goes to the trouble to put me in front of this situation and um, and help help get me even more interested in, in what this instrument was all about, yeah.
2: And a lot of parallels, actually, to what Norm had just said, too, is not only the adult planting that seed but then exposure to really high quality playing that that was maybe the the switch that got flipped
4: yeah that's i i, anyway, I, I think this is uh there there's a whole new whole new um topic I that that comes to mind now it's just as of uh, the uh, the important person and a person so in in some ways I, I, I was I'm trying to we we still haven't titled this episode that we are in, in the midst of and and um, one thought was to call it you know the origin stories of musicians because it seems like musicians have this deep connection to that moment when the, their instrument becomes their instrument and um, and I've, in previous episodes, my instrument really is guitar and, and, and I, I remember clearly that moment, but it's also voice and choir. And, and I remember that moment, you know, very clearly, um, trombone, and I just became this thing that I did for a long time. And, and perhaps that's why I haven't done it since that time, you know, that, uh, that I, I really loved it for what it gave me, but, but it wasn't as, as big a part of my lifelong musicianship. Yeah. And, uh.
1: Well, this is great. Karen Nolan, Professor of Music Education at the University of Arizona School of Music. We really appreciate your time today. It's great to be connected with you again in this very different way and uh, hear your thoughts on musical instrument selection. Thanks so much for being our guest on Lifetimes of Listening.
2: Thank you so much. I had a blast talking with you both today. Thank
4: Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to Lifetimes of Listening. If you haven't done so already, please follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. We hope you'll also consider participating with our project by telling us your story. And you know, we're really grateful to the over 150 people who have already
1: recorded a story for the Arizona Musical Memory Archive. It's allowing us to better understand the ways that people value music in their lives. And if you haven't yet visited our website, you can do so at... Musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. Please visit soon. You'll find the full-length interviews of the ones that we have posted there.
4: You can also submit a musical memory of your own via sound file, an essay, or poem, or even an illustration of some sort. Or you can suggest someone you'd know who would like to share their musical memory with us. Please take a look at musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Dan Cruz. That's Lifetimes
1: of Listening. Thanks for being with us.
0: The executive producer of Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast, is Brian Moon. The program is produced and edited by Dan Cruz. The Lifetimes of Listening website was created by Cynthia Barlow, Principal Information Technology Manager with the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. Music is from zapsplat.com and from pixabay.com. Special thanks to the Fred Fox School of Music for hosting our website and UA Marketing and Communications for helping us launch this project, the archive, and this podcast series. For more information and to get involved in our research, visit musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast.